Hello and welcome to What We've Learned, another episode from Series 3. And as hopefully you know by now, Series 3 is all about leaders and pioneers. We've had some fascinating chat with the whole array of leaders and pioneers, and today is no exception. In fact, maybe it is an exception, because if you look up the word pioneer in the dictionary, you'll probably just see a picture of our today's guest, Ruth Owen. And if you don't know Ruth Owen, my goodness, you will by the end of this. But Shane, tell us a bit more about our illustrious guest. So I'm fortunate enough to know Ruth well, and she's one of the people who really inspire me. She's currently a Chief Executive Officer at Leonard Cheshire. She's also a member of the Mayors of London's Equality, Diversity and Inclusion Advisory Group, uh, and uh, participating in that, and a long and distinguished career in the charity sector. And she's going to share with us uh, how she got there and what she's doing today. And isn't she just quite an extraordinary woman as you're about to find out. Please sit down and enjoy Ruth Owen. Well a really warm welcome Ruth, it's a real pleasure to have you as a guest today. Thank you for joining us. It's my absolute pleasure Shane, I'm really looking forward to our chat together today. So you're well known in the charity sector, Ruth, very well known indeed, but that's not where you started, is it? So what, what was your first role when you came in to work? Well, I, my first role, Shane, was just incredible. When I think back to where I started, I started in a, in a chemical company, local to home, um, doing admin and filing and data entry. But I always felt that um, I could do more. I thought it was a great opportunity for me to get my first role in employment because, uh, as some of you will know, or nobody will know, that I'm actually a full-time wheelchair user. So, you know, somebody with a disability back then, work was not really an opportunity for them. Everybody told me quite openly that I would never work and the job centre was down the road for benefits and, and social housing was the other way. And by the way, why did you think you needed to go to work? And I thought, well, I definitely need to go to work. So I was really keen to, to get my first role in employment. And to be honest with you, Shane, I didn't really, you know, I didn't really care what I did. And I know that sounds, uh, doesn't sound so good, but I just knew it was such an opportunity to go to work that actually, if I started at the bottom, I could gradually work my way up to what I wanted to do. So that's how I started. And, uh, and all those years ago, I still can remember my first day at work there and how anxious and scary it was because I didn't have any formal education. So I was, you know, I knew what an opportunity I'd been given, um, but I was equally quite nervous as well. See, see, Ruth, that's exactly why we've asked you to be on here, because this series, as you know, is leaders and pioneers. And to to to, to literally sit there and, and, and say, right, OK, everyone's telling me not to. It takes a certain type of person to say, no, hold on a minute. I'm going to push myself. I'm going to pioneer. And I'm, I'm sure we'll talk about this today in terms of latterly where you've got to and what you've championed so brilliantly. But back then, you know, obviously the world, I'm sure, was different in terms of the chances. Did you feel a responsibility to you and indeed other wheelchair users to say, well, hold on a minute, this is about us, not just my career, that I can I can help strive a path? Or was it more kind of single minded at that time? It was it's actually my my desire to do something for me. I'm interested I, I, as to where that to may honest. have come in. I have to be honest, Steve, I was doggedly determined for me. I don't know if that's, you know, I should own up to that, but it, it's true. I was just so 
determined and I was just so single-minded. I mean, I was probably a pain in the ass to people around me at the time um, because I just thought, I, I, I've got to go to work. I, you know, I knew that work was my route to independence and financial freedom. And it was expected of me. And I've said this many times before that I would just stay with my mum and dad and live with my family. I wasn't expected to have an independent life. I certainly wasn't expected to have a mortgage or do any of those things. And it was openly talked about, well, of course, you'll stay with your family, won't you, till the day you die? And I'm like, looking at my mum and dad, and as much as they're fantastic, I was thinking, not in a million years am I going to be staying here. And so I'd always dreamed of, I'd always dreamed of living and working in London. I never knew how I was going to achieve that, but I was single-mindedly determined. And when I was, when I did have to go to the job centre and this particular gentleman said to me, well, you know, you're not going to work and I'm not quite sure why you've rocked up on my doorstep. And he said, I don't have any jobs to offer somebody like you. And I remember thinking, like me, I just use wheels to get around. Why do people not see the talent that maybe I've got to offer? But anyway, I said to him, well, if you're not going to help me, then I'm going to help myself. And when I've got something, I'm going to come back and tell you all about it. And, you know, I was with my mother at the time and she was horrified. My mother was much more, uh, she was polite and not say so that I was rude, but I was certainly very assertive for myself. And I think that's being brought up in boarding school. I learned to fight for myself and have a voice. Um, and I and I did go back and I did tell him. And I told him very, I was a little bit on the tad rude side, but not too rude. And I said, now, listen, now what are you going to say about this when I've secured my first job? But how fantastic, because, I mean, you know, it sounds like any other stroppy teenager, to be quite blunt, Ruth. It was, uh... <laughs> I, was, I was exactly that. I was, I was uh, coming up 19. I was a stroppy teenager. I wasn't having any of it. And if my mother got in the way, I used to say to her, look, you don't, I don't need you talking for me. And that is always a bit of a kind of thing, isn't it? With a, with a child, if you're a parent of a disabled child, you feel that you need to kind of not protect them. She didn't protect me, but she kind of wanted to ease the, ease the pain, I think. Yeah. She wanted to make it all right for me. And, and, and to be honest, I used to say to her, you can't make it all right for me. I've got to learn to you know, be independent and fight for myself and have my own voice. And credit to her, she did allow that for me to happen. So two key things there, you know, that, that she gave you the space to do it. And that I love the fact you you reference your education and you know there's this there's a lot of talk about boarding schools and whether they're good or bad but you know independence is absolutely one of the things they foster and it sounds as though that served you really well you know to to have that your own expectation of what you wanted from life so um, that's really that's really interesting where does it take you next Ruth what well, after your admin job well, I think, you know, what boarding school was, a, you know, my, my father worked on the mines in Africa. And, you know, my parents had their, you know, my father had his career. My mother was a, what you'd probably say is a corporate wife. And uh, even though she'd had a career in, in the UK before, before we left to go to Africa, and I went to residential school because, you know, it was also deemed that somebody like me with a disability wouldn't actually go to mainstream school and they weren't accessible back then. So, you know, residential care was where, with schooling on site was where I ended up. And I, you know what, Shane, it probably was the best thing that my father and my mother did for me. It, it gave me that level of um, accountability for myself. It taught me resilience. I had nobody to go home and cry to at the end of the night. Um, I went home twice a year, sometimes three times a year, but mostly only twice a year. 
um, to Zambia. And actually, I had to learn to kind of get on with it. And there was none of this, well, you know, I could go home and I could cry to my parents about the difficult job and all the rest. I, di I didn't have that. So, you know, that's that really taught me that I need to, if I want to achieve something, it's going to be down to me. And so when I got my first job, I then thought, right, what do I do next? I was a little bit bored. I wanted to learn more. I, I thought, right, I need to do something with my voice and, uh, and my brain. So I then went to an oil company and I did telesales. And do you know what? That was the, because I thought, well, nobody can see me in a wheelchair. I'm just talking over a telephone and they won't make any, you know, they can't judge me or buy anything because I'll know, unless I tell them I'm a wheelchair user, nobody would know. And I have to say there was like my previous boss, he saw something in me, my second boss that, and, and really kind of pushed me and promoted me and kind of did all those good things. But my desire was always to leave my hometown. I, I didn't want to live at home. I wanted to go out and get drunk. I wanted to go and have loads of friends. I mean, bear in mind when I was at boarding school, I left most of my friends behind and had to start again. And, and you know, work is a great place for socializing and finding friends when you're young. And I thought, you know, I, I just need to get out of home. And so I thought, what am I going to do? And then, you know what? It's like, I don't know. It's just, I don't know. It's luck or just sheer determination. I, I found a job doing telesales, but for a tech company in London. And, you know, and today they're known as Hewlett Packard. But, you know, that was just the most amazing thing I did. And, you know, what's lovely about that story is that I'm still in touch with my first boss that employed me there. He's now in his 70s. He lives in London and I'm still in touch with him today. He gave me my greatest and biggest opportunity. A wonderful, wonderful man. He employed me. Um, you know, they were American company. I thought they'd be much more progressive in terms of disability, particularly with, you know, um, vets and all the rest of it. And it was it was the best thing I did. And, you know, listen, I had to work hard, but it definitely was the best thing I did. It's really interesting, Ruth. I mean, we've talked to a number of people on this series and the thread that comes out is that kind of self-determination. But but equally, that it's not a unique skill. Anybody, if they're in the right environment, either by kind of circumstance and difficult circumstance for you or fostered into a place of confidence, can achieve perhaps more than than they realise or then or in your case, made, you know, made to feel by others. I just wonder on those, do you think there was a thread for those first hiring managers that they were the same kind of people? What was it that was different about them that made them take a chance in you? In you? Or was it that you, was it you had to actually, I, I, I guess, work even harder than if I can use an in inverted commas, the average person to, to, to get across how great you were? definitely had to do the latter I definitely had to once I got the opportunity I knew I had to work harder than my colleagues I think going to your point about those managers you know what I think they had great empathy mm. when I talked to my boss today you know he the in the guy at HP he had great empathy he was he had an ability to spot talent and he was also very accommodating of difference he didn't judge and, I, and he was amazing. He really was truly amazing. Now, listen, he just gave me the opportunity, gave me the job, and the rest was down to me to make of that role what I did. But I kind of, when I've done, after I did telesales, I, I then said I wanted to go into frontline sales. And I remember them, but it wasn't this particular boss, but the, the gentleman at the time said to me, well, what do you think your clients are going to think about you being in a wheelchair? 
doing frontline sales. I said, listen, they've got much more to worry about what comes out of my mouth rather than worrying about <laughs> the four wheels that are attached to my ass. And I said to him, well, I'm prepared to take that risk. I said, the risk is all with me. I said, if I don't deliver, you'll fire me like you fire anybody else. So I said, so where's the risk to you? There is no risk. I said, it's the risk is all with me. So you be, you get behind me and back me and I'll, and I'll make it happen. And I was one of their most successful people at the time. So I think, you know, for me, it was about, I knew that my life couldn't be about doing nothing. You know, I just couldn't do nothing. I just thought that I had a contribution to make in the employment market. I also thought that anybody that was negative in my life, and I've got two things that I did. I, when, I left, when I left school, I ditched the medical profession. So when I got to 18 and my mother gave me much more of a, you know, a choice over my health and everything, I got rid of my doctors and I got rid of my consultant. I went to see them and told them he'd never see me again. Because the last the time before that I saw him, he said to me, you'll be dead at 40. And I said, well, I'll be the judge of that, not you. And I, and I walked out and I thought, I'm never going to see you again. And I never did see him again. And, and you know, I'm touch wood. I mean, I've got another funny story, but I won't tell you on this. But I, I, I just don't, I try to keep out of the medical profession's way. So I got rid of them. And then I secondly got rid of, you know, because I was in residential care, I had social services quite actively in my life. And I got rid of them as well because they all kept telling me no, and I don't like the word no. I like the word yes, much more. Uh, I think that's really fascinating, you know, that that, that empowerment of uh, almost permission to get or ditch the negative, as you say. And as you say, you know, people who say no, particularly when they're in trusted professions, let's be honest about this, Ruth, you know, the, too long of perhaps is, well, you know, I have to go along with what you say. So I think, you know, that that sheer again, we sound like sheer bloody mindedness. No, I, I don't accept what you're going to say. And I'm, I had a similar experience myself. I broke my back when I was 17 and I was told that, that I shouldn't basically I shouldn't take up sport. So, of course, went off to university and chose the worst sport to take up, which was rowing um, to put a strain on my back because I was absolutely convinced that that was the way I was going to get better. But it you know, it could have gone horribly wrong. Did you ever worry about it going horribly wrong by you saying no? You know what, I think when the great thing about being young is you don't worry about the consequences quite so much as you do when you're older. I think, I did, you know what, I just thought, what's, I mean, I guess the other big impact in my life, I lost my sister that was next to me at 19. I was 19, she was younger, she was 18 months younger than me in a car accident. She was, she was a passenger in a car accident. She died instantly. I think after that, I thought, what's the worst that can happen to me? Most people can say no to me. Well, no is just a word and it doesn't really hurt me. After losing somebody in your family suddenly, um, you know, I always work back from, well, if nobody's died, then okay, let's see what we need to do. So I, I, I kind of was like, I, I'm gonna make this happen for myself. And if it takes me longer, if I have to go around it in a slightly different way, I'm, I'm actually going to do it. And I didn't, if I'm honest with you, Shane, I didn't worry about the consequences of failure. And Ruth, I mean, let's go back to the, to the, the telesales and into that technology space. Um, it, it's fair to say you, you kind of undercalled quite how well you've done in that space. I wonder if we can talk about, you know, that phase of your career as, as a total of, of, of quite how far you got and, and not only what you achieved, but what it taught you and, and how it's led on to latter things in life. 
Well, it taught me, it taught me, it taught me about relationships with other people. It taught me how important it was to have a, a you know, great colleagues that you worked with. It taught me, it taught me that, you know, how to enjoy life, if I'm honest with you. You know, I'd come through a pretty difficult family circumstances of losing a sibling, you know, so that was hard as a family. That was very, very tough. You know, my parents had already had it tough with me being ill as a young person. You know, I was walking and then I had a vaccination and then I, with, um, when I was young, inoculation, and I never walked again. So my parents had had all of that trauma. And, you know, my parents were actively encouraged to put me in an institution at seven, which, to be fair, I did go into for three months. But I was then very naughty and obnoxious. And I got a couple, I'd had a black eye and I'd had my chair confiscated from me for being cheeky. And so my parents took me out of that institution. So my parents had already had it tough. And then they'd had it tough through losing and losing, losing my, you know, my sister. So I think it taught me, it taught me how important life is, how to grasp the moment, not to be looking to other people to provide you with that level of happiness or security. Um, and that was really down to you. And I think that's, that still holds me in good stead today. You know, if I want to do something different or, you know, I'm not quite sure, I'm not happy, then really that's down to me to go and make, to go and make that different or do something different and take a bit of a chance and take a little bit of a risk because I think sometimes we don't always do that as human beings so it's easy for us to moan about stuff isn't it rather than do something do something different and actually what I did really value is just how lucky I was to have such an amazing employer that saw my talents rather than my disability so it saw that I had something to offer the organization and it saw the contribution that I could make so it, it taught me a lot and it taught me a lot about business, if I'm honest with you. So just about learning about business. And I, I, I love the fact and it's no surprise to me at all, Ruth, knowing you as well as I do, that that you were topped the sales charts because you you do have an amazing ability to get people almost without knowing it to do things. Um, and it's interesting. I, I, I find often in the UK, particularly, we're a little, how should we say, we're a little snobby about um sales skills and I like you I started in sales and thank goodness I did because to me it's one of the most important commercial skills that anybody can learn what what were the other commercial skills that that you learned as well as to be able to negotiate uh, and persuade people well I learned I, I guess one thing I did learn Shane was I learned the dynamics of relationships and politics, I don't like to use that word, but people and human beings. And sometimes I always say to people that you end up being much more of a psychiatrist in doing the roles that we do as, uh, in leaderships, don't we? Because it, it teaches you what motive, it teaches you how to have empathy with that other person, understand their point of view. It teaches you how to, how to lead people and how to motivate people to go that extra mile. And I think one of the things I really loved and enjoyed was just being part of a team. And it wasn't all about me. And all right, in sales, sometimes it can be seen as a very I, but I always think it's also about we, it's about the collective. You do much more together than you do as, a, as somebody on their own. But it, it taught me to, you know, listen, I had to travel with my job. So that was also a challenge as a wheelchair user. But, you know, it taught me a lot of those kind of 
business skills and a lot of things that are not so obvious that you know you when you're in a business meeting like reading the room and all of, all of those things and, and I guess that you know being a wheelchair user and always when because I didn't get my first wheelchair till I was seven so I was often plonked in on a dining room chair or a lounge chair by my family and surrounded by my parents um friends and I learned quite early on the conversation of adults and, 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 and responsibility. So that stood me in and being and being emotionally intelligent, intelligent. And that stood me in good stead for my working career because I was already quite tuned into how people thought and think. And so that just helped me through my sales life, if I'm honest with you. It's interesting, Ruth. I've mentioned this before, actually, on earlier podcasts. There's a book that just come to mind uh, by Daniel H. Pink called To Sell is Human. And as you said, you know, and Shane said, you've made an incredibly successful career of being able to sell. But it doesn't matter if you're listening into this and you're you're in a sales role or whatever role. We sell all of the time. or We we have to sell all of the time. And he talks about how a modern salesperson is in whatever, you know, selling to one's family or friends or whatever it is, is is more of an omnivert. They've got, I I guess, that emotional intelligence, that empathy, that there are times when you need to be the extrovert and the shouty one or that 19-year-old self one that's determined and, you know, on the borderline of rude to what you've said, but just Mm -hmm. I'm going to show you, versus the more reflective, the quieter one that knows when when to give a gap, when to give space. It it all feels like all of the that you've encountered has, has helped you just to refine that selling ability, but not just as a salesperson in all the roles that you've had. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it just, I think it just teaches you about people. Mm. You know, people are interested. We don't come in all the, we don't, we're not all the same, which is fantastic, really, isn't it? It's good. Thank God we're not all the same. You know, God, I've met another, another one of me. Like, that would be painful, I'm sure, in parts. But I think it's just that ability to storytell. It's the ability to communicate. It's the ability to, be able to put yourself in somebody else's shoes and I think you know I, I try to do that and you know I try and do it and do it with some some grace and be humble about that if I'm honest with you and I don't I haven't forgotten where I started and, and I do pinch myself and think oh goodness me I people say to me you've done really well and I look back and I go and I sometimes don't believe it myself I go well have I of course I have but I don't always believe that of myself really if I'm honest again that self-belief and 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 sort of imposter syndrome it's really fascinating talking to all of the different leaders that we've been interviewing they've all mentioned it which I I think you know that ability to question yourself must be part of what makes a you know good leader but I'm also fascinated it sounds like you have this really interest in people and you've ended up in a sector, let's be really honest about it, you know, charity, one of the toughest sectors, particularly today, um, with probably the most diverse group of stakeholders of any business. Mm. So you must really love that difficult challenge of a wide stakeholder group, Ruth, because otherwise you wouldn't be so successful. Well, I do love it. And I think, but I think philanthropy was always I was always going to end up in the sector. I just didn't know it as a young person because my mother always, we always had philanthropy in our home life. You know, my mother was a big supporter of kids in the uh, internationally. My mother did a lot for Red Cross. She also, um, we had foster children in our home. Uh, My mother was an amazing giver. She was very selfless. And we had Leonard Cheshire in our home because she worked in a Leonard Cheshire care setting. 
um, as as the night staff because she was a she was a nurse, and so it was always brought up in in our lives. And I think of all of us, and I'm one of five. One of us was going to take on her mantle, and I didn't know it was going to be me. In reality, I should have known that because I spent an enormous amount of time with my mother because being sick, young, you know, she looked after me, and I'm extremely grateful for you know, some of the life lessons that she gave me, like things like she'd say to me when I was younger, well, you know, you're the oldest of my children and, you know, the, there might be something wrong with your legs, but there's nothing wrong with your brain. And if anything happens to me, I expect you to look after your siblings and I expect you to look after my, you know, your dad and da 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 da, da. So she always put that huge level of responsibility on me. So I I never thought I'd end up in the, in, in the, in the charity sector. And it was only the fact that I got to my early 30s and I thought, uh, I need to do more with my life. Uh, you know, tech, I needed purpose. I needed to give back because she'd always given back. And I thought, what can I do? And then I joined a board of a charity as a trustee. And that really set me on the path that I am today because I thought I, I, I can do more. And I went to a number of services where, you know, I'd met young people that were looking after the, you know, they sit their siblings and, you know, they'd have an alcoholic father or, you know, a drug addict mother. And, I, I, you know, I remember meeting one young lad that really left an impression on me and he was only seven or eight. And it kind of took me back to where I was at that age, which I remembered vividly. And I thought, you know what, Ruth, I need to change the course of my life. And that really did it for me, if I'm honest. And, you know, just having that kind of very giving parents that would help anybody really set me on on the path to doing the job I'm doing today. It's very open of you, Ruth, but uh, and and very giving towards your parents to give you the credit. But it, it takes a certain type of person as well. I mean, massive credit to you because lots of people may come out of those environments and think I should do something different. I could do something different, but but not do it. I mean, you obviously have made that change. And and if we can, if we talk about if if you don't mind your your current role because it's quite a recent change into Leonard Cheshire. Um, tell us about that, how, you know, how that started and what your team and what your now and the future looks like in terms of what you've got to tackle there. Well, if you had said to me at the beginning of the pandemic that I would change my role within in the year of the pandemic, I would have said, oh, you're crazy. But I always felt that, you know, listen, I'd done, a, it was a privilege to lead WizKids for the length of time that I did. But I felt that my, my journey at WizKids was coming to an end. I felt that, you know, I needed something different. I wanted a bigger platform to make a greater change for the disabled community. I, you know, as much as it was amazing putting kids into mobility equipment, I felt that I could I could do so much more. And so when then a Cheshire opportunity came to me in the summer last year, I thought, why wouldn't I? It'd been in my home life. You know, the man back then was an amazing innovator and a pioneer. I thought, you know, this is such a great opportunity to have a greater impact on the world, to make the world a fair and inclusive society for disabled people. So listen, I went through the process. Um, I was super fortunate to get the role. I was so excited when I got the role. I think the day I was offered the job, I think I went out and in the evening and had, to, and I mean, I'm not really a drinker, but I had a little glass of Prosecco to celebrate the start of my next chapter. And then I started in the early parts of this year, the 1st of Feb, all virtually. But you know what? I, I absolutely love it because 
I cannot think of an organization that's got, it's a global organization in the disability field. And it's amazing in the fact that we, we want to fight for an fair and inclusive world for disabled people. The fact that disability has slipped down the agendas is not right and it needs to be higher up the agenda. And we need to be having those conversations every day like we are about LGBTQI. I mean, done an amazing job. Black Lives Matters, super important. Disability needs to be a mainstream conversation. And I look forward to the day and I'm hopeful that I'm gonna make this big difference at my role at Lena Cheshire with my team and all the people that I work with in the wider stakeholder group, that actually, that we're not having a conversation about how does a disabled, get, disabled person or a person with disabilities get employment. We don't have to have those conversations because the world has made changes for an inclusive society. That would be my dream. I mean, if I achieve that, I'm gonna go and sit on the beach somewhere. I think in the sun. In the sun, yeah, and I'll be be there with you, Ruth. I think that's the uh, a beach in the sun is is a welcome dream for all of us at the moment. But I think it might come of a surprise. I think it's quite interesting the whole Leonard Cheshire charities. You say it's a brand you knew um, through your parents, and actually, it's again one I I know through my parents. But maybe there are generations. You mentioned Leonard Cheshire himself as a pioneer. And perhaps I'll come back to him and what an amazing man he was. But there may be people who don't realise just how big you are as an organisation. And I was just looking on the website and 6,000 staff, 6,500 volunteers, helping over, you know, 30,000 people, I'm sure far more than that, in fact, and a global reach. I mean, that's something possibly, it's been a bit of a hidden story. Would you agree with that? Oh, definitely, definitely, definitely. So, you know, I think, you know, the challenge and and the opportunity I've got at Leonard Cheshire with the team and I is really to make Leonard Cheshire accessible to the younger generation. So I think there's a group of people that, you know, like you said, Shane, that will know Leonard Cheshire from the man, the amazing man he was. But the younger generation, when I was coming for the role and I said to them, well, you know, what do you know about Leonard Cheshire? You know, they'd look at me and go, nothing. Mm -hmm. So I think we've got to make Leonard Cheshire relevant. I think we've got to, you know, make Leonard Cheshire an organization that really is a you know a, a disabled led organization organization and fighting for the rights of disabled people and i think and i always say as well making leonard cheshire even more customer obsessed and making sure that our voice of our customers over everything that we do and we're enabling our customers to be the voice for themselves like my mother did for me she allowed me to speak for myself you know, at times she would step in, but by and large, I spoke for myself. And I think, you know, my my role as leading the organisation, and it's a huge privilege, is to actually put our customers at the centre of everything we do and then actually empower our customers to actually talk globally for what they feel is important and the rights that they want to see and the changes that they want to see in society. And I think, to be honest with you, Shane, create a social movement where actually, you know, people say, get other disabled people, non-disabled people to be as feisty about the rights of disabled people as disabled people themselves. Does that make sense? Makes perfect sense. Yeah, absolutely. To to, to mobilise those people. We, we talked actually with another guest around uh, women in boards and how actually they hoped when they started that, that they could almost you know, nearly 10 years down the track, not be doing the job anymore. And it, it seems similar that that incredible 
vision and passion you've got effectively may make you redundant one day, Ruth. But it sounds like you'd be delighted by that if actually it's just normalized that everybody, regardless of their able or disabled status, just starts to see everybody as the same and recognizes as you've managed to strive through your career with those managers that have taken a chance to see the person for what they're capable of, what not what they're incapable of. Yeah, definitely. Definitely, Steve. I mean, I think, you know, I always say to people, look, you know, you know, I might be in a wheelchair and you can see my disability very visibly because, you know, I sit in a wheelchair, but lots, one in five people will have a disability and some of it's not very visible. And I think, you know, I think the world needs to be made much more inclusive. We need to be looking at people's abilities and it's possibility with disability, isn't it? We want to be able to live, learn and earn. And it, and it doesn't matter, you know, whether you have a disability, it, it's, it becomes almost irrelevant. So I, that, when that day happens, it will be fantastic. But I've got a lot of work to do to get there. But I, I like hard work. I mean, listen, if I didn't have a purpose and I didn't have a goal, I, I would be, I'd be rubbish. You are a glutton for hard work. I'll, I'll second that. And I think, you know, just taking on the fact you're out to create a social movement and, you know, the, the aspiration, because it has to be that big, doesn't it? And I love the fact you refer to not every disability can be seen and, and nor should it in a way. But how do you make the world a more inclusive you know, place? It, just how do you do that, Ruth? I mean, just how how do you get people to to understand that it's it benefits us all you know it is it's for everybody's benefit to to have this more inclusive world i think it's really sad that i have to say this but i think it has to be around the economic modeling of it all i mean you know at the end of the day my pound is as good as your pound shane or steve's pound i think it's about the purple pound i think it's about education I think it's about the benefits rather than negatives I think it's about us as disabled people really championing other disabled people and actually also championing change I mean change comes from people doesn't it you know any big changes in the world have all come from they haven't come from policies and procedures and governments and all the rest of it it's come from it's come from society hasn't it? it's come from communities it's come from people feeling really strongly about something. I mean, you know, that's really evident through Black Lives Matters. You know, that's around people coming together and saying this is not right. And so I think for me, it's about how do I create that passion in non-disabled people, but also disabled people? And then how do I set about getting businesses and getting bigger stakeholders to actually say, you know what, you're absolutely right. And, and I have to I have to say it has to come round to to money as well. I mean, it has to be about you know so, you know uh, society seeing disabled people as contributors, contributing to the economy, contributing to their local communities, contributing to society. And and let's be clear, not all disabled people will be in employment. I mean, you know, but independence for one disabled person is very different from independence for another disabled person. And so I'm all about making the world fair and, and inclusive for disabled people and providing opportunities for disabled people to have that opportunity to do whatever they want to do, whatever they choose to do. 
It, it feels almost Ruth, like back to that 19 year old self where that guy sits across from you at the job centre and says, I've got nothing because you're disabled. It's actually it's not disability. It's about looking at somebody's capability. And, 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 and with my, my, my marketing hat on, you know, just listening to you, it, it feels like it's a branding exercise as well. If you, or an advertising exercise, may I, that the more times you see the right kind of behaviors in enough places, eventually it sticks. And as you say, you, you can see this perhaps with, um, with gender equality, you can see it with gay rights, you can see it with Black Lives Matter is, it's only a good thing. The more that your message is out there in enough places, it eventually just normalizes that people are just seen as people rather than, you know, we'll look at her in on her four wheels or, or whatever the, the abnormality might be that to, to people. It's it's that chance to just get the brand out there. And and it perhaps is it also influences as well. If I use modern parlance that you've got those role models, people that have trans like you, but, you know, others that transcend and, and people can on, on on both sides of the able versus disabled um fence can actually just see as a brilliant human being and and therefore they see them first not as I say they see their capability not their disability definitely and do you not think through the pandemic i think one of the things that i think has come very is been very clear the, the, is that people's kindness to other human beings is brought people closer together through the pandemic and I think you know it's about it is about a branding exercise and it's also about just human beings at the end of everything that we do there's a, usually a person at the end of that isn't there and I think you know I think I'd like to think that through coming out of the pandemic you know the disabled community has been so you know vastly uh, disadvantaged and you know lots of social injustices and I'm just like I'm hoping that the level of kindness that we will look at other people with a disability, whether it's very visible or hidden, and we'll show some level of kindness to, to that other human being and actually say, well, actually, that person deserves to have the same opportunities as I do. I, I echo that, Ruth. I think, you know, it's interesting. There's a lot of, I'm not a futurologist and, you know, most futurologists get it wrong. But I think everybody's agreed that we're at a point with our society now where you talk about, we will talk about pre-COVID and post-COVID. And I think... These societal shifts are huge that are going to be post-COVID you know, post and they're, they're really big ones. Like you mentioned, the reflection of what matters to people. We've had this period of reflection, enforced reflection and, and what's important. And it's really interesting, as you say, that kindness is definitely one that's come out along with reconnecting to the local community which for many of many of us you know if you were commuting into London you just didn't have but that power of the the local neighborhood to support you or your you know your flat next to you or but just micro geography and then the last point to one that that Steve references is actually because we've all been stuck on our screens what's really impressed me is actually there has been greater visibility of disabled people I think you know I think Ruth Madeley for example she was on um, Celebrity Masterchef I think Hannah Crockcroft has been quite visible and so it's really starting to happen do, do you think so do you think it is a tipping point Ruth? I definitely do I definitely think I definitely do and I think you know I, I, I think you know if you'd have gone pre the pandemic you know one of the big big challenges for disabled people in employment is they you know, it was hard infrastructure, you know, if I just think of myself in London, you know, I think I've been on the tube 
in my life probably three times um, because it's just not accessible. Listen, it's getting better, but it's not that accessible. So, you know, getting to work was, a, you know, it was like climbing Blimmin Mount Everest if you were either in, in London or if you were in a city that wasn't totally accessible or if you're in a rural area, how hard would that be if the bus didn't have a ramp and all the rest of it? So I think with digital and technology, it's a massive opportunity for the disabled community to be able to, you know, go into the workforce. So, you know, listen, when I sat, sit on Zoom all day in Teams, nobody would know I was sitting in a, in, in a wheelchair. You can't see it. And, and it's and it, so I'm hoping post pandemic that there's going to be greater opportunity for the disabled community to, to have full time employment. And that's one of the things that we will be fighting for at Leonard Cheshire. It's about, you know, how do we in this day and age make the very best of technology work for the disabled community? And I will say to people, you know, tech has changed my life, you know, for the better. It's enabled me to have a much more independent life. And, and I think what's great is the younger generation of disabled people are much more impatient. You know, they've been brought up on smartphone technology and, you know, iPads and all the rest of it. And, and I'll be honest with you, Shane, I mean, I'm a one-click finger lady. I mean, God, if I have to go through loads of screens and all the rest of it, I can't be asked. I give up. I mean, you know, that's what Amazon have done so well. And, you know, and I don't even use a debit card now with PayPal and Apple Pay and everything. So... You know, the young generation of being disabled people have been brought up on that. They want change. They want it quicker than than maybe my generation they've waited for. And actually, they can't see any reason why not with the with the with technology as it is. And I and I really endorse that. I think rightly so. So let's see greater change and let's see it quicker. Because we've seen through the pandemic as well, when government wants to do something and enable society. It can be done very quickly and money can be thrown at it. So I'm, I'm hoping that we're going to see greater infrastructure changes that are more inclusive for the society that we live in today. Here, here. Wow. And, it, and it's your role, Ruth, in that is going to be so pivotal. But you've got so much more to want to do and to offer. But it feels like you're almost on that. You've got that brilliant position to, to hand, hand the baton on to work with that next generation. You know, the the 19 year old versions of you, if you if you cast your mind back there. And, and I wonder, because conscious of your time, but I wonder if I can ask you perhaps one final question. As you know, the podcast is what we've learned and, and it is there and you've given so much in terms of advice today and, and thoughts. But if you went back to your 19 year old self now, is there, are there one, maybe two things that you might say to, to you back then or to, to others, that next generation that are coming through that you, you think has served you, if you, what you know now you wish you'd have known then? Well, I think, you know, when I look back to my younger self, I, I think if I was talking to a young person, I don't think you should ever give up your dream. I had a dream. I had a goal and I was not going to be deterred. And now I'm, I might have been knocked off the path a couple of times um, in terms of a slightly, you know, you might have to instead of going straight, which you might have to go around a bit to get back on the path. But I was absolutely determined. So I'd say to young people, you know, if you really do want something, you should absolutely go for it. Don't be scared of not fate. If you know, if you can't quite get there and you end up somewhere else and you might have failed along the way, failure is good. My failures have taught me much more than my successes. When I haven't been able to get something I wanted, I thought, right, OK, I need to think about this a slightly different way. Or I've also taken the other route and said, well, it wasn't meant to be. 
And so I'm a great believer in that. And I think the other thing I would say is that, you know, life isn't fair. And so, you know, especially this younger generation, they've been brought up in a generation of having, and I only look at this with my own nephews and nieces, you know, most things to their fingertips. For a lot of disabled people, that is still, you know, they still have to fight, you know, to have a job, to have a mainstream education, to have accessible housing, all of those things. So there is a fight for still a lot of people. And I think just to show some level of kindness to people, you know, when I was young, I, you know, I, I, I don't know if I did do that. I tried to be a good citizen back then, but I'm not sure I was as good as I could have been because I was focused on my, I was focused on, I was focused on proving a point, if I'm honest with you. Uh, so I, I, I think it's important, particularly today, to A, go for your dream, but also just have a little bit of kindness to other people along the way. Well, 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 Shane, inspiring stuff, as we thought and as we knew we'd get from Ruth. I hope you've all really, really taken something from that. Um, a lovely place to end as well, Shane, that balance of, yes, be nicer to people, a sentiment that's easily said, uh, but balance it with you've got to have your own goals as well. Don't don't trample on other people. Use in a positive way, but, but, but work on your own goals. And, and I guess it would have been easy, Shane, for someone like Ruth, through pivotal points in her life, that job centre moment back at the early stages of her career to just, it could have gone one of two ways. Some people see those sliding door opportunities or as, as threats. It's a really interesting one where certain things can trigger certain changes in people's lives for the good. Yes, and I think those sort of, as you say, sliding door moments are really interesting to reflect on. And I, I suspect you and I both had them ourselves, but everybody listening thinking about, well, I wonder what would have happened if I did this differently. And it is seeing that, you know, rather than a sliding door, perhaps a sort of uh, the door half open or mm. half closed. And uh, you know, well, to that point, then Shane, is there anything that you is there anything that came to mind for you? Just the catalyst that in your life has yeah, has opened? there is. There's a number of things actually. I mean, I think um, I I was there's lots of things that have happened in my life which we definitely I can look back and say, gosh, that was quite a changing point. And one for me was um, in the sixth form. You, I'm absolutely passionate. Loved my um school school life was very happy there adored my subjects geography and history and biology didn't really know what I wanted to do but had no idea um was going out with a lovely chap at the time who had applied to Cambridge and I thought oh that sounds quite interesting so I, I sort of said to school I said oh you know my school was a comprehensive school how, how do you apply to that oh well you have to be invited to join the Oxbridge set which is run by one of the um Teachers who who went there and you have to be invited. And I said, well, I haven't been invited. And they said, well, no, um, because you've not been put on the list. And I said, but I, I want to go there. And they said, no, well, we've never had anybody who hasn't been invited. And I said, well, this is a bit silly. If I really want to go there and I've, I've researched it and I can do historical geography, which I love. And, and they said, oh, well, we'll see if I can fit you in. And it was it was all so bizarre. It was, it was very odd. Um, and then... I have to say, I'm sort of reflecting back on it. I could have got there, but um, 
I did get in. So, you know, it's, it was the seize the moment day. Yeah. yeah. And again, it's that sliding doors. By the way, uh, it is worth saying, perhaps because you've told me this in the past, that the college choice as well that you went with and any particular reason you chose the college. Of course, it was oh. for the academic rigour. Is, that, of is course, that the only reason? Completely and utterly. Uh, no, not at all, Steve. You know me far too well. Um, no, I chose to go to Jesus College, Cambridge, because... Um, 1979, and this is, gosh, ancient history, um, they were taking women for the first time. And I really liked the idea, because I've gone to an all-girls school, um, of going, obviously, to uh, to a college where it was next, but also of actually being one of the first that really appealed. And talking to my cohort and, and those I've stayed friends with and reflecting on those who joined in that first year, we all had that sense of, wanting to be part of something special and making history and the other reason being really honestly was I was a lazy sportswoman but it's one of the few colleges surrounded by its beautiful sports ground and you didn't have to trek miles to go and play hockey or tennis or any of the other things that I love doing so two good reasons to apply there. Very smart insight yeah ancient history as you say but more about the geography literally the, the study and the ability to get to where you want to from a sporting point of view, and maybe, just maybe, Shane, uh, in first intake of females might have been an awful lot more undergrads who are male that might have been of interest. Who knows? Funnily enough, the ratio was you know, <laughs> 30, 30 of us and 300 of them. But what about you? What, what about, you know... You yeah, it's an interesting one. I, I mean, again, I think I'm sure anyone listening in, and as you could say, there's, there's quite a few moments you look back in reflection. But for me, and it's a similar time, actually. So doing my levels, geography being one of them, and economics... And in fact, theatre studies, that holy trinity of A-levels, um, although theatre studies is more English literature, I guess. Um, it, similar, but not quite the same path. But I was wanting desperately to go and do performing arts at university, but it became quite clear quite quickly that although academically I might get there, it just wasn't necessarily uh, the right life choice in terms of being able to support oneself. Uh, and then actually, quite sadly, um, it became clear that going to university and pivoting, is that the right word still in 2021, um, into a more business and finance based degree just wasn't going to happen because of family circumstance. Um, so it left me actually at 18, 19, desperate to, to learn and better myself, but with no real opportunity or seemingly no opportunity, Shane. Um, and as you'll, as you'll know, when I was 19, um, person, girl I was dating at the time, her father, I can distinctly remember sitting in his living room almost in a kind of 1950s style the ladies will go off to the kitchen now and him sitting across from me and saying along the lines of so so you're going to spend your life working in a shoe shop forever is that your plan um and i don't know shane to this day it's a really interesting one uh, as to whether that was meant as a fuel or whether it was meant and i took it actually as a well you're not good enough and that that fired me up to say right what can i do and and i went down a different academic route um, i started night school almost immediately and found my passion and some academic rigor to what I was doing that it, it, those very small moments can happen in life that you know and, and Ruth really embodied that didn't she that that 18 19 year old Ruth that's sitting across from that job center person who can just you know label people and and potentially allow someone to be put in a box and, and Ruth was quite rightly not having any of it there's a much bigger world that I'm going to find rather than yeah. being labeled or boxed and that, and that just sheer resilience, I think, is what, what came through from, from Ruth. And I think it's really interesting, you know, to reflect on what you've said, sort of, again, it, it's it's people who spur you to do things or make you think about things differently, sort of 
just think, oh, hang on a minute, I'm going to prove you wrong, which sometimes for some of us who <laughs> like to uh, you like to prove people wrong, but that, that can be an important spur. So those listening, you know, who perhaps have got teenage children is that I'm not sure whether that would now be a an agreed way of uh, mentoring uh, people, but it's, it is interesting sometimes those comments. That, uh, yeah, very know. much so. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and actually back to that, that pioneer piece, we, we talked about Leonard Cheshire, the charity and, and Ruth's new role, but we didn't really talk about Leonard Cheshire, the man. And I, I have to say, Shane, I knew the charity, but I didn't really know much about Leonard Cheshire until we spoke to Ruth. Perhaps you, you know more about this man than I. It'd be really interesting to hear more about him. Yeah, and absolutely fascinating. And I think a life peer, um, one of the most decorated war heroes um, of the Second World War, BC. Um, he was a group captain. He, he got the Distinguished Flying Cross as well. Um, just an absolutely illustrious career in the, in the RAF. And actually was held up as a real hero to parent, parent, people of my parents' generation. So I think that... For them, he was an absolute household name, as much for what he went on to do as for what he actually did in the war. And that was to found this, this hospice um, for, you know, people from who had been injured in the war and for those with um, with disabilities, um, which became the Leonard Cheshire Homes. And that sort of, but it was really deep within his, his psyche about helping others. Um, and being able to show that, you know, everybody could make a, a valuable contribution, exactly what Ruth is saying about founding a movement today. And I think that's something that you and I are both equally passionate about, perhaps haven't done what Ruth's done. But in terms of saying, actually, everybody has a huge contribution to make and we just somehow need to make it easier. And I think that's something that, that Leonard Cheshire for the next generation can provide that. Um, so I hope that lots of people listening to this, Steve, will will think, well, gosh, within my organisation, you know, how could I perhaps find that talent? How could I engage that? How do I go about being a a wider and more inclusive in, employer? Yeah, I agree. I mean, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Because Leonard Cheshire almost embodies all three of those. So the leaders and the pioneers that we've been speaking about on this series, but also, as Ruth ended on, as we picked up, that balance of... Of, of, of running your own race, achieving your own goals, but being kinder and, and being supportive. It would have been very easy for him to take literally his accolades and medals and, and swan off, but he found a new challenge, which is to, to leave a, a legacy and to support others like him or, or not like him at all, which I think is a lesson, uh, particularly on that not like us. And as you say, I think anyone that's listened into this today, if, you've, if you're not familiar with what Leonard Cheshire do, go and have a look at leonardcheshire.org, particularly if you're an employer, you know, open one's eyes and think, well, OK, are there people that aren't like us that are a brilliant opportunity? Because as, as Ruth embodies, you know, you don't need to be defined by by your your legs, your wheels or whatever it may be. There's so much more that people can offer. So there's an onus on that individual and maybe a sliding doors moment, as we talked about, Shane. But also what can others do to be kinder or indeed smarter? How can you bring people in? So have a look there. And by the way, we didn't even get a chance to talk about Ruth, but if in the detail of uh, her, her accolades, but if you want to follow her, find her on Twitter at, at Ruth Owen OBE. Yes, Ruth Owen OBE. We didn't even have time to talk about that, but there's the mark of what Ruth has attained so far. And as you talked about, and as we know, Shane, from her track record, I don't think it'll be the last we hear of Ruth and what she's going to try and att attain over the next few years with her movement. So, 
that's all we've got time for today. Thanks ever so much to Ruth again. Truly insightful, inspiring stuff from her. Thanks as ever to Shane, but mostly thank you to you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode. Uh, do feel free to comment. You'll find us at wwlpodcast.co.uk. That will route you through to LinkedIn where you can comment on this episode and others. And as ever, you can find all of the episodes from all three series so far uh, on Spotify, on Apple Music, on Google, on Acast, wherever you take your podcasts from. We'll be there and we'd be very happy to hear from you at any time in the future. We'll be back with another episode soon, but for now, thanks everyone.